a bombshell but so far unconfirmed report from The Guardian. The former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort met with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange three times, including in March of 2016, which is around the time Manafort joined the Trump campaign. With Mueller now reporting to Matt Whitaker, the regulations that govern the special counsel's office essentially say that Mueller has to run by Whitaker any major decisions about the investigation. Your father has authorized lethal force, he says, if necessary. Does that concern you? I don't believe that that's what he said. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. You know, we try hard at Trumpcast to think about variety and not serve up merely Trump's folly or the way he bulldozes and tear gases human rights or his authoritarianism, or the palace intrigue around him, or his illiteracy, innumeracy, and depravity. But of course, we get, as T.S. Eliot said, distracted from distraction by distraction. And I get a particularly devastating vertigo when anyone around me confidently identifies which is the distraction and which the main event. And when those people remind me that confusion and mystification of the people is a calculated effect of the tyrant, and I need to keep my eye on the ball or on the bullets hurtling toward us, and ignore the fog of war? Or is the fog the thing we're supposed to attend to, knowing it's a dry ice machine clouding our reason while Trump and company pick our pockets with tax breaks for the rich and the closing of GM plants? Well, today, we are not striving for variety in the sense that we are returning to one of Trumpcast's one-man themes, Paul Manafort. Fortunately, Manafort is a man of infinite variety, serving various masters, a longtime leader with Roger Stone of Washington's so-called torturers lobby. Manafort used to launder the reputations and the money of bloody dictators and oligarchs, the better to shield them from scrutiny and let him peacock around in ostrich skin. Today, of course, Manafort's in the clink, having, as they say, traded his ostrich coats for a forest green prison jumpsuit, a more natural quaff, and a wheelchair for his bone spurs or hangnails. My guest today is A.G. from the awesome indie podcast, Muller She Wrote. We are fans of the show and have been chatting on Twitter, and we have a lot to talk about, in particular Manafort. I'll be back in just a minute, but first, the tweets. Very disappointed with General Motors and their CEO, Mary Barra, for closing plants in Ohio, Michigan, and Maryland. Nothing being closed in Mexico or China. The U.S. saved General Motors, and this is the thanks we get. We are now looking at cutting all GM subsidies, including for electric Cars. General Motors made a big China bet years ago when they built plants there and in Mexico. Don't think that bet is going to pay off. I'm here to protect American workers. The Mueller witch hunt is a total disgrace. They are looking at supposedly stolen crooked Hillary Clinton emails, even though they didn't want to look at the DNC server, but have no interest in the emails that Hillary deleted and acid washed after getting a congressional subpoena. 
while the disgusting fake news is doing everything within their power not to report it that way. At least three major players are intimating that the angry Mueller gang of Dems is viciously telling witnesses to lie about facts and they will get relief. This is our Joseph McCarthy era. Joining me on the line is A.G. That's the pseudonym for the anonymous host of the brilliant podcast, Muller, She Wrote. A.G., welcome to Trumpcast. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I've been wanting to, to talk to you for a while. We're super fans of Muller, She Wrote here at Trumpcast. So, yes, we're joining forces. I have to ask you a question first. Have you ever seen the British crime drama? I think it's called a cozy Rosemary and Time. No. Okay. Rosemary, one of them's the smart one and one's the hot one. I can't remember. I think Rosemary's the hot one. And they, <laughs> like, they're gardeners. And every season, they're gardening, you know, just planting roses and down in the dirt. And one of them says, oh, God, a body. <laughs> and they're off and running. And I feel like we and some of our, the other, and I'm not just going to say they're not just women, but there's a certain kind of Miss Marple vibe or murder she wrote vibe, have just been trying to, we found the body. We found the body of the the Republic. We found, yeah. right, you know, November 2016, the days that will live in infamy. And since then, we've been trying to solve this mystery. Mm, yes. So many bodies, though. But I, yeah, I can relate. I'm certainly not the hot gardener in this one. So. I think you're the hot one. Oh, we don't know because that's why we podcast. Ha <laughs> um, <laughs> We're all hot ones on podcast. All the hot and the smart ones. We're Rosemary Time. We're Miss Marple. We're all of them. All right. So, AG, your command of the details of the Mueller investigation floors me. How did you come <laughs> to the Mueller investigation? How did your what kindled your curiosity and then your encyclopedic understanding of what they're doing in in the Mueller rooms? Well, I had a I had a vision. We were. Okay, so like it was, it was wasn't until May that Mueller was appointed, and then the first indictments didn't start coming out until the end of October, early November. And so during that time, I had caught a documentary that was playing on NBC, and it was an old one. It was like from 2006, and it had Matto and all these folks talking about Watergate. And this is before I got into slow burn. But they were talking about all these ins and outs of Watergate, and I saw all these parallels, and I had this vision of like 40 years from now, somebody would be making a documentary about the Trump-Russia investigation. Yeah. And I said, I want to be part of that. And so I just put together the pod, and I said, people are going to want to know about this. People are going to want to understand it. There's going to be – it's so – it's 10 times Watergate. And there were already a bunch of folks out there like you guys and Seth who were trying to break it down as best they could. So I just I said, that's what I want to do. And we started at the firing of James Comey and then the appointment of Mueller. That's I feel like when people started to talk about the Saturday night massacre and then all of a sudden we had a prosecutor and a check and balance. I, I think the first time my immune system started to rally and it's been defeated since then. But the first time was the appointment of Robert Mueller, where you felt like someone with a clear vision who was not partisan, who, you know, had a history of prosecutorial zeal, was going to take a hard look at this catastrophe that was the election of Donald Trump that, you know, we knew and, and Hillary Clinton knew was the installation of a puppet. I mean, mm. 
it just was astounding that we watched this all happen in real time. Yeah. And despite this being terrifying and tragic and horrific and unbelievable, I actually feel quite lucky that I'm able to witness this probably greatest test of our justice system yeah. in our history. Yes. Um, it's it's terrifying, but it's historical. The magnitude of it, we just, we can't understand because we're in it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because you, I'm sure, saw, you saw Luke Harding's piece in The Guardian about Paul Manafort's meetings with either Ecuadorian officials or possibly or allegedly Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, which really would set up another branch of the case for conspiracy to defraud the United States yesterday. And I've been thinking about how British reporters like Luke Harding and Carol Codwallader, they've not let up on this. There's no both sidesism in the way they report. There's no, you know, special politeness. And there's something in that brio that I see in you where you're not beholden to journalistic conventions of, well, let's be very cautious here. You call it like you see it. And <laughs> how do you, I mean, how do you keep your, I know you're in Southern California, so you're sort of free of the, you know, Eastern Corridor, D.C., New York thing where we're all on top of each other. There's something very independent about how you think about these things. And I don't get how you maintain both your anonymity and your independence. That's really interesting. I'm surprised that I haven't been doxxed or gone after or, or, or FOIA'd. The only person who's FOIA'd me is uh, Trump. So, Oh, he has. Um, he did about a year ago. He ordered the Office of General Counsel, his Office of General Counsel, to FOIA my employee records. Wow. Uh, and that was uh, terrifying. But yeah, it's it, everyone's been very cool. I've you know we've I've talked to a lot of journalists who've done a lot of pieces on on our podcast, and everyone's been very respectful of that part of it. But yeah. the independence part, I just I wanted to be able to conject wildly. Yes, um, I wanted to be able to theorize like a crazy person, but I also wanted to make sure that everyone knew the difference between what I was reporting as fact or at least what was reportable news. Versus what, you know, you know, here's my tangent on what I think it could possibly mean, because that's the whole part of solving a mystery. Yeah. And Mueller gives us nothing. Right. I mean, <laughs> I think the I think seeing this as a murder mystery, as you do in your title, is a really interesting way to go, because we've been hearing about so many different models for thinking about the Trump syndicate. You know, we had former federal prosecutor Ali Honig on the other day. You've talked to people like this who really see it as a mob roll-up. And then there are people who see it as a counterterrorism initiative, the Mueller prosecution. And you clearly see it as a mystery where theories of the case are very important. And we need to sort of reel through those in in real time. And you've had so much success in some of your speculations. And as you say, wild conjectures, tell me some of the things you're, you're proud you've been right about. Oh, gosh, we were right about. I had said in one of my first episodes that if what if it if Manafort, if Flynn gets indicted alone without his son, then that means Manafort didn't roll on him or he didn't roll on Manafort. And so it turned out that Flynn's son was not indicted. Mm -hmm. And we had called that. And that's a weird side thing. But we were just doing some family, you know, like family <laughs> values conjecture with that one. Yeah, that that actually really interests me because 
three players have been very interested in their children. I want to get back to all the other things you've been right about. But of course, I also just want to pick your brain on everything. Michael Cohen has expressed concern for his children when he flipped and his flip seems pretty convincing. You know, he's virtually campaigning for Michelle Obama now. He's he's uh, he's really renounced his former evil ways. And he cited his children as part of that. Michael Flynn Michael Flynn seems to have fallen on the sword in part for his son. And Manafort, too, you know, his daughters, uh, I think Andrea, Andrea in particular, but also Jessica have, have, you know, cited him in their leaked texts as having blood money while he was in a psych ward or a sort of psych, I don't know what, retreat in 2015. He spoke about, you know, that he wasn't long for this world to his daughters and one of his daughters has changed her name. And there's speculation that part of the reason that he has monkeyed around so much with his plea recently is that he's more afraid of like Skripal like threats on his daughters by his Russian and Ukrainian overlords than he is of being in prison. But he's safer in prison and he doesn't want to flip on his Russian mob overlords or his the oligarchs he worked for. And he'll sort of go down protecting them to protect his family. Do you think that's a reasonable hypothesis? Yeah, I agree. I, I think he never intended to not spend the rest of his life in prison. Hmm. And I don't think he ever intended to cooperate either. I think he started cooperating so he could save the money on a second trial, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he's doing this for his family or mm-hmm. for himself. He doesn't seem like a very good family guy, considering all the you know, the stuff he's forced his wife to do and his daughters don't, I don't think they like him very much either. But, you know, maybe somewhere deep down, he's got like the shred of care for his family and he doesn't want them to die in like, like you said, a Skripal type Novichuk situation. Yeah. Because he he still owes Deripaska $19 million. And that's just one of the things that he owes the Kremlin. I wouldn't be surprised if they put a target on him like they put on Bill Browder. You know, yeah. Let's go to Oleg Deripaska also. So he was the copper magnate who's now in the Russian way and three days was made essentially bankrupt. Is it partly because he was expecting 19 million dollars to roll in from Manafort and he didn't get it or or he offered him debt relief in exchange for policy? I don't know. What do you think is that relationship? I think that Manafort, uh, Kalimnik was was the go-between there, and Kalimnik is also indicted with Manafort. This is the known Russian spy, right, Kalimnik? Yep, the known guy who spoke Ukrainian, that guy. <laughs> got, um, got it. So I think what happened with that is that, you know, Deripaska, he had a deal fall through, a telecom deal fall through with Deripaska. Deripaska came after him for like $19 million and then sued him again for $20 million in two different countries. And basically what happened is right around March when Manafort was trying to get that job with Trump for free, you know. Yep. Pro bono, just public service. Right. And he said, you know, you should see my connections. I hope Manafort basically offered Deripaska briefings on the campaign, intel Mm -hmm. on the campaign. And we've got, God, there's so many good sleuths out there. We've got the private jet landing in Newark when Manafort was having dinner with Kalimnik at 666 Fifth Avenue, which is Kushner's building. Yeah. And then they met and then they flew back, picked up the prime minister. That's when the sex coach, what's her name? Nastia Rybka got yes. the video of, of Deripaska on the boat. And yeah. Navalny got a hold of that. And then he's in jail. It's it's just it, it is whoever said, you know, whoever looks at this as like a spy novel mob roll up. They're absolutely correct. Wait, Navalny is in prison now? I believe so. This is the opposition leader. Some people have compared him to John Stewart. He's an incredibly 
charismatic and yeah, makes these crazy videos. I didn't realize that he was in jail now. I should say to Trumpcast listeners, we're just going to go in the weeds on this without <laughs> even sometimes we may not identify someone like Kalimnik. And I hope that you guys will just go with us on this because it does get complicated. So you you feel like you have enough receipts to say that Manafort was actively meeting with oligarchs, Kremlin officials after he had decided to sign on with the Trump campaign in order to get whole. And what he was trading was some kind of influence and even changes to the Republican policy platform for money or debt relief. Correct. And I don't know if he was communicating directly with like the prime minister or the Kremlin, but he he was definitely communicating with Kalimnik, who then communicated with. So Kalimnik was kind of his go between. And um, there's definitely not a smoking gun that connects the trade for, you know, information and briefings and, the, you know, basically that change. I think what you're referring to is a change on the on the RNC platform during the convention that eased up the the language on Ukraine, Russia, how Russia was treating the Ukraine. And um, I know that Mashburn was there and a couple other Trump guys were there, but Manafort was definitely there. I'm not sure if that Manafort is the connection for that relief or if Manafort was simply working his debt off by giving campaign intel updates to the Kremlin through Kalimnik. Why would merely updates on the campaign of a fairly long shot candidate at that point be worth this kind of massive debt relief? I don't know. The only thing I can the only thing I can think of is what you're also positing. And, and this is my theory. And I, you know, I'm, again, I want to make the difference between I don't have any documentary evidence showing that Manafort making changes to that platform, the Republican platform or getting buying any kind of influence. I don't have those documents like I do with I know that he talked to Kalimnik and I know it was giving briefs and I know there was a, a, a debt relief in that. But I, I do. That's the only thing I can see, because those mm -hmm. are the things that came out of it. Those are the fruits of what Manafort did. And, you know, also, who knows, maybe he helped him with Brexit. <laughs> well, interesting. I mean, one of the confusions I have is about the interaction among the oligarchs the mob, the Russian mob, and you've pointed out that we're getting close to a notorious figure, Semyon Mogilevich, who is the capo di tutti capi, the, the boss of bosses in the Russian mafia syndicates. So anyway, the Russian mob in America and in Russia, the Kremlin, presumably with its imperialistic goals that Putin wants to somehow restore the Soviet empire, maybe someday even make a move on Europe that he has these kind of aspirations in addition to his oligarch aspirations. So why would a Deripaska of the copper fortune also share the interest in disarming the Ukrainians or not supplying arms to them to forward these political aims? I mean, I, I'm just confused. I just want to know, like, who wants money here? Who wants political power? Are they all the same? You know, we often say uh, this oligarch is close to Putin, so he might as well just be speaking for the Kremlin. I mean, is that all fair? I think so. And all oligarchs are 100 percent loyal to Putin. And, hmm. and this I remember a story and forgive me if I'm a little hazy on the details, but I think that Putin took one of his oligarchs, paraded him out, put him in a cage. Yes. Yes, this is Khodorovsky. And that was a moment where he took one of the richest oligarchs who he felt like, you know, was kind of on his shit list, put him in a cage so that the 10th biggest oligarch, as Bill Browder says, would get the message, you know, what's mm -hmm. going to happen to you? Yeah. And he imprisoned him. 
So it seems like in the person of Alexei Navalny, once again, an opposition leader who it looks like he was sentenced in May to 30 days in prison for something. He may be out now or I'm not even sure he served the time, but maybe you have more interesting information on this. He is, to some people, considered Putin's enemy number one because he's a threat to his political power. He might reveal that the people of Russia don't actually support Putin and that in a free and fair election, Putin would lose. So that's one threat he poses. And then the other public enemy number one or Putin enemy number one is Bill Browder, a frequent (laughs) guest on the show, because he's in a position to destabilize the money of 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 the oligarchs and even of Putin. Yeah. And so it does seem like there are sort of two strains here. So where does the Russian mafia fall into that? Where does Semyon Mogilevich fall in? Because I thought maybe we were rolling up Manafort with Deripaska and then the Kremlin in, in, in our sites, in Mueller's sites. But you've proposed that it might be Mogilevich at the top of the chain or the second to Putin. Yeah, um, I, they're, you know, they're in the muscle they're the enforcers mm-hmm. of what the Kremlin either is doing to keep the oligarchs in line or when the oligarchs in line are using to sow discord in NATO in the West. And I mean, you know, there's a lot of ultimate goals that you can think about. I know that if you've had Seth Abramson on your show, he talks a lot about the grand bargain and building nuclear reactors in Saudi Arabia using Russian money so that you'd have to lift Russian sanctions. But that's really just a ruse to be able for, you know, for Saudi Arabia to be able to enrich their own uranium and build a bomb because they hate Iran. And that's why we pulled out of that deal. So that whole I mean, there's it's so complex. But I, you know, I I see it as these three major things, like you're saying, you've got Kremlin sowing discord, you've got the Russian mafia, who's the muscle, the enforcer, and Mm -hmm. and then you've got everybody else. What you said earlier is now is stuck in my mind that Manafort knew he was going to spend his life in prison. I mean, he'd been agitating for some of the worst people in the world and laundering their money and reputations. I think it's for something 40 plus years. And he knew what he was doing was dirty. I mean, he was partners with Roger Stone, you know, the godfather of dirty tricks. I mean, neither of them thought that someday they'd kind of straighten up and fly right. Um, (laughs) They were, you know, these are serious crooks. They've been interacting or at least knowing the names of Mogilevich, Yanukovych, Deripaska for decades and maybe Assange. So, you know, we learned that Manafort may have met with Assange. I, for one, trust Luke Harding's reporting on this. I don't really know why there's a question, but let's just say that The Guardian has reported that Manafort met with Julian Assange. Julian Assange, known to be a Russian agent or asset. Do you think they flipped each other? If they met in 2012, was that the first time that Manafort considered fully coming on board for Kremlin initiatives? Or was he already one of them? I think he was already one of them when he was working for Yanukovych back in the day. So the whole Tymoshenko-Yanukovych was kind of the casual rehearsal for Brexit, which was the dress rehearsal for the 2016 election. And I think that getting involved, you know, there was just this this whole web started to kind of come together with Cambridge Analytica and Farage and Malik and, and Assange and WikiLeaks and Bannon then and then, you know, getting into the U.S. and getting into the United States. And it just sort of it was almost like a natural progression if you're an up and coming criminal. Yeah. I mean, I love this idea of dress rehearsals. And I think that's right. You mentioned Tymoshenko. This is Yulia Tymoshenko. She was Yanukovych, the bloody Ukrainian dictator, Kremlin-aligned dictator, now in exile in Russia. 
he did write a campaign, a lock her up style campaign mm-hmm. with Lu- Yulia Tomashenko, just turning. And I don't know if this is a Manafort idea, but turning, I'm just going to say, just a, like principled, good hearted, mild mannered public servant in Yulia Tymoshenko into a hardened criminal. In the mind, it was just like a a crazy upside down land thing to do in Ukraine, and lots of us watched it in horror. She actually ended up in prison and injured and pushed around, devastated the way that Trumpites hoped to do to Hillary Clinton. We watched that in horror. How could that happen? And then we saw it all but happen here, just a few years later. And don't forget, Manafort went to Vanderswan and a Skadden law firm in the United States yeah. who they who they got th- into through people like Dana Rohrabacher wrote this whitewashed report trying to back the idea that that Tymoshenko belonged in prison. So he's been involved in these kind of things for, you know, for at least since back then. And, and so it was only natural that he I think it was Ted Malik who helped who he no, it was. He pitched him himself, Manafort, working for the Trump campaign through one of his friends. Oh, yeah. Who said who pitched him to Trump as lethal. That was the praise yeah. of Manafort. Right. He should work for them for free because he's lethal. And then he also did, since we're on Manafort and he's in the news, then he also did some things that I, I mean, I just what do you think of the fact that he picked Pence? Well, first of all, that Ivanka Trump agitated for oh, she she agitated for Flynn to be hired but then Manafort really wanted Pence. I mean, was that just to get Trump to win or does Pence have some Pence part of this grand bargain somehow? I don't know. He's done a really, really good job of keeping himself com- like a, a, at an arm's length from any of this. I Because he's he I, maybe from the beginning, he's like, I'm going to be vice president. I'm going to be president soon. And I just need to keep away from all of this. But he, there's no way... He couldn't have known, at least during the transition. And I know Mueller has all those emails from the GSA, but GSA being the United States administrative service that that hosts all the emails for governments in transition. But as far as choosing Pence, the only thing I could think was just to get a sane person who looks good in a suit up on the stage with Trump. You don't think that he has some connection to the Liberty University donors, you know, the Franklin Graham types who have NRA connections and Maria Butina connections. Absolutely. But I don't think he's got any any Russia connections. Got it. OK, well, Maria Butina, but uh, an NRA money, at least. But yeah, that's somewhat attenuated. Um, I mean, it still is one of the mysteries of this time that Miss Marple would be interested in that the like vicars over there. <laughs> A little religious types seem to be on someone's payroll. They're not acting very Christian. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's the the connection there, because folks like Boutina. But see, I see I feel like the whole Flynn and KT McFarland, Singapore um, Sessions, Kislyak Mm -hmm. group. I think I feel like that was all more put together by Bud McFarland and those Boutina and those folks. Mm -hmm. But there is definitely that connection of Russians coming to so influence in our election and not just through the NRA, but also through religious groups, like you said. And that that could be where the connection is. But I yeah, I I haven't been following Pence as closely. He's done a good job keeping himself uninterested, uninteresting to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep yourself uninteresting. But isn't that what one of the players on the train that might have done it that's in the court? Isn't that the butler? 
Isn't that the, what the right. butler does? Anyway, we're not fingering <laughs> Pence. Not today. It might move in that direction. So Manafort, why do you think, and, and people were speculating all kinds of ways yesterday, why do you think that Manafort breached his plea deal with Mueller? It's just so outrageous and seemingly self-defeating. I mean, you know, there are other reasons. He might have been angling for a pardon, as lots of people say. That seems to be the leading explanation. He might have been, as we've explored, serving another master, like afraid of family poisoning. And last, he might be, as Ben Wittes has said, just an irrational actor. I mean, he is, you know, he was in a psych ward not long ago. He talked about suicide. He said he's ill. He's in a wheelchair. He's, you know, really played this like I'm not doing very well card. Do you think he's just thrashing around and a wreck? Well, he he knew, like you said, when he told his daughter, like, I'm not long for this world. Yeah. But he does. He, he doesn't look well. But, you know, I, I kind of had a feeling back when you remember when Flynn flipped and when Gates flipped right before they flipped, they did a couple of things like telltale signs that they were going to flip. One mm-hmm. of them is, is that you you get out of that joint defense agreement with Trump's lawyers mm-hmm. and then Manafort. Uh, there was talks of Manafort flipping and he never got out of that joint defense agreement. And we were all wondering, we were all left hanging like, but what about this one last piece? Because the way I always, you know, make my conjecture and say he's going to flip is when somebody ends that joint defense agreement with the Trump campaign or with the Trump loyal Trump, sorry, Trump's legal team. Yeah. And he never did that. I honestly think, and this is complete conjecture and I have nothing to prove any of this. uh, But I think that he and Trump and maybe Corsi, and mm-hmm. uh, Andrew Miller Stone and maybe whoever this second secret subpoena battle is that's going up through the courts right now that we don't know about. But it's definitely part of Mueller's thing. So basically somebody held themselves and or not held themselves, but wanted the court to hold them in contempt so they could refuse the subpoena so that they could challenge the constitutionality of Mueller's appointment in the D.C. appellate court, maybe the Supreme Court. Andrew Miller's doing that. We know that case. That was orally argued uh, a week and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And it's still going on. But then we have this other secret one that people were like, maybe it's Trump, maybe it's Pence, maybe Mm -hmm. it's Kushner. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably Credico, but, you know, who knows who it is, but it's somebody else who's resisting the subpoena. Remind me who Credico is. Credico is the comedian, quote unquote, connection with Stone. The guy Stone says is the one who put him in touch with WikiLeaks and Assange. He, he, he recently appeared before the grand jury for a couple of hours and brought his little dog with him. Yep. <laughs> his emotional support, Maltese. So they're, they're all, I feel, and they were all in this joint defense agreement. And I feel that they, I, I just have this feeling that Trump was like, tell you what, you all sing the same song as me. Y'all get a pardon and resist your subpoenas. And then Trump turned his answers in based on what they had all agreed that their story was. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is who's going to break the circle? Yeah, we did a show on defense lawyers. And sooner or later in the mob, everybody's just out for themselves. It's just them and their lawyers because their lawyers want the best deal for them. And I think he said something like there's a circle, like you just said, don't who's breaking the circle, where everyone has their gun at the next person's back around yeah. the circle. And that I think the feeling that something's going to blow, you know, that people have had lately, that something's about to blow up, is that somebody is about to fire their gun if they haven't already. 
into the next well, person. Well, Nunberg broke it. Remember Nunberg? Yes, Remember yes. crazy Nunberg? Sam he Nunberg. He was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be subpoenaed. You drag me in there kicking and screaming. I'll go to hell before I answer this subpoena. And That's then right. The, that nice lawyer lady was like, but if you do that, you go to jail forever. And she and he was like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm cooperating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was amazing. Um, yeah, Sam Nunberg, who went on a one-day cable TV spree. Drunk. Drunk. Yeah, I, he has pretty much said that poor guy, he has sort of a drinking problem and also seems like he has a criming problem. All right, I want to go back to things you've gotten right, and then i got to let you go because how else are you going to spend the rest of the day sleuthing? Um, ah. What Things you've gotten right. Yeah, take some credit because I've been amazed at how well you guys do. What I really like would like to talk about is something I'm about to get right. Oh, let's hear it. Because I've been sleuthing this for, gosh, since early spring that, that Manafort was, you know, he was up on charges of tax fraud and money laundering. But I, I've always said he's going to be charged with superseding crimes of collusion, conspiracy against the United States, conspiracy mm-hmm. to defraud. Crimes of collusion is spelled out in Rosenstein's redacted memo that Mueller used as a court filing to prove his legitimacy. And there's just been so many clues. There's been that redacted memo that's, you know, there's been a couple of of minute orders where judges in his cases have said, uh, you know, we aren't going to unredact his warrants and we're not going to unredact these memos because they, you know, they're hiding things that are part of an open and ongoing investigation that, that, quote, are not part of the current uh, prosecution, unquote. Um, so there's just been all these clues that have been dropping. I've got a good list of them on, up on Twitter right now. Yes, your threads, this is at Mueller, she wrote, are fantastic and well worth reading, as is, of course, it's so worth listening to your podcast. I can't remember the name of Angela Lansbury's character in, in Murder, Jessica she wrote. Fletcher. Je- you are the Jessica Fletcher of our time, um, AG. <laughs> Thank you for your, your service. I know you're ex-military, and yeah, you've given a lot of service to your country in every way. <laughs> and uh, and I'll definitely keep listening. Cool. And and look for those charges that we've never we never got to see on Manafort. I think they're going to happen now that he blew up his plea deal. So keep keep an eye out. Watch watch these space beans. I'm I'm now long on all your predictions. Thank you so much for being here, Ag. Thank you, Virginia. It's been so good talking to you. I've been wanting to do it for a while. We love your podcast. So keep it up. That's it for today's show. We love Twitter feedback. We're not afraid of feedback. So hit us up at Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then you got to do one more thing. You got to sign up for Slate Plus. It's Slate's membership program. And, you know, if you've been taking this show for free, stop being a taker and start being a giver. You'll get Trumpcast ad-free bonus episodes just for members and more. Visit slate.com slash plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. John D. Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald Trump. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks again for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>